Ukraine is a mess. Don't blame Donald Trump for that. Well, you know, one minute. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Welcome back to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group. I'm your host, Ola Olaker, speaking to you from intermittently sunny Brussels. And I'm your co-host, Hugh Pope, here in Belgium. And today it really feels like a globe-spanning podcast with our two guests from Russia and California. Yes, we are covering all of the time zones, or at least many of them today. We are talking to Edward Geist, a C researcher at the Rand Corporation and author of the book Armageddon Insurance, Civil Defense in the United States and Soviet Union, and Ivan Kalugin, who's an independent expert and affiliated with the Russian International Affairs Council about how countries, and particularly the United States and Russia, prepare for, well, Armageddon, how they prepare for the worst. So Edward and Yvonne, thank you for being very flexible with your schedules in order to join us. Well, thank you for having us. I want to go back in time, in part because Edward's book is historical, but I think also because it's hard to understand these questions without going back at least to the Cold War. How did the US and the Soviet Union kind of start off thinking about how to prepare for a nuclear attack? What is that history? Well, in the beginning, the vision was basically that World War III would be like World War II with more nukes going off. So the vision in the late 40s and the early 50s was actually like military thinkers, both in the United States and the Soviet Union, concluded that the bomb would not actually be a decisive weapon. That basically it would be used for the sorts of things that conventional weapons had been used for in World War II in part because there just weren't that many nuclear weapons in the late 40s. Basically found that, well, we don't have enough nukes to actually knock the Soviet Union out in the beginning phase of the war. And so the assumption was that, well, we're going to, in the opening phase of the war, we're going to nuke a bunch of Soviet cities, but the war is going to continue. It's like the Red Army is going to go into Western Europe, and we're going to have to fight a protracted war that started with nukes and going to continue having nukes, but is not going to be predominantly nuclear in the sense that we think of the stereotypical nuclear missile war that became possible in later decades with advances in technology, thermonuclear weapons, uh, ballistic missiles, and so forth. And civil defense was going to be a piece of that. The idea being that it was going to help keep fighting and win this sort of like nuclear slash conventional war that they were envisioning. So you need to kind of protect people in order to keep the war effort going. And those people presumably are, on the one hand, the military personnel. You need to prosecute the war one way or another. They're the leadership, right, who you also need to give orders. And they are actual living human beings, because if everybody in your country is dead, you probably lost the war, right? Do you go about this in different ways, protecting them? So you definitely go about it in different ways. The protection for the senior leadership tended to be very different from that for a random individual. So because of this notion, the sort of like World War II like vision of how this war was supposed to forward, a lot of the protection in theory was supposed to be concentrated on protecting the economy. The idea is like, well, we're going to have like war industries in the World War II sense that are going to be making stuff during this nuclear war because we expect the war to last for months or years maybe. And so the idea being that, well, if you're building bomb shelters, well, maybe the bomb shelters should predominantly be for factory workers. 
and then you might use some cheaper way of protecting uh, like or your civilians or school children and so forth. It's like, well, you evacuate them to the countryside maybe because you're not worried about nuclear fallout yet. It's not really been appreciated as a threat. Thermonuclear weapons haven't been invented yet. Whereas the senior leadership, the idea being that, well, maybe they would get more sophisticated bunkers, even though this is something that actually took a while to materialize in the U.S. In the Soviet Union, there were already these very elaborate leadership bunkers that had been built during the war for conventional bombing that served initially. The military, there was a complicated sort of picture because the idea being in part that there was going to be a lot of movement, right? It's like they... Also, that the initial U.S. vision for using the weapons was for city busting, not for attacking military targets tactically, even though people were advocating that even during World War II. But the initial plans predominantly was like, well, we're going to be destroying Soviet administrative industrial centers with the bombs. And then there aren't enough of them to sort of like go after every sort of like Red Army bridgehead sort of thing. So, of course, this all changed rather dramatically in the 1950s. But this is the way, circa 1950, this is the way it was thought of. So, but then, you know, things do change, right? And you get to this universe of uh, mutual assured destruction, the realization that once you get into real nuclear war, you've run the real risk of having a very fast war. But you also, in order to deter your adversary from having a very fast war in which you are destroyed and they are not, everybody starts thinking about the survivability of their weapons and of their personnel. And Yvonne, do you want to talk to that a little bit? and kind of how that got filtered into these conversations. I think an important bit here is to look at how there was actually a lag between uh, American and Soviet development of the nuclear trial, for example. So if we're looking at uh, the late 50s, early 60s, you already have Alabeta CBMs in the United States. You have a large bomber fleet. You have SS- actually viable SSBNs. You have uh, command planes. You know, There's a lot of things going by that point. But if we look at the Soviet development, these tried actually mature much later in 70s and 80s. So I think it is one of the important things is to actually look at this lag in development of the triads and survivability angle and that Soviets actually had a very modest target for deliver damage on the United States in terms of value destroyed. In a second strike. Uh, yes, in a second strike. So who wants to talk about the dead hand? The dead hand, in my personal opinion, is actually a key element in maintaining a strong negative control over the nuclear forces rather than a nuclear survivability measure. Because if you want to have a survivable nuclear force, you could just pre-delegate authority to the launch crews. You could pre-delegate to the SSBN crews, like the British do, essentially. You need some sort of way to assure that this still works even if leadership is dead. So in this sense, the dead hand acts as pre-delegation temporary authority that you pre-delegate those unlocker keys to, which then distributes them to the actual shooters if certain conditions are met. Edward, anything to add to that? Yeah, so basically the context for this is that the Soviet government was always much less comfortable with handing the weapons over to military control or basically like allowing them to leave the control of the senior political leadership. And so they were actually more aggressive than the United States in some ways and pursuing technical solutions to that problem. For instance, this question of like, well, we don't want to send our submarines out with the ability to just like fire their missiles if they want to, which is the solution that countries like Britain have traditionally used. So instead, and the dead hand being the most extreme example of this, giving the political leadership an option where they can refuse to permit the launch of the weapons, but also have the possibility of some sort of like promise of retaliation. And so the solution being that the rumor, at least, is that it's an automated system and the 
Soviet or Russian leader can turn it on, and if it detects nuclear explosions on the territory of the Soviet Union or then Russia, and then it can't find the leadership, it will begin delegating launch authority as the rumor of how it works. The idea basically being to ensure retaliation, but my read of the system is that it is not fully automatic. There's a notion this is a doomsday machine that, like, will use nukes on its own if it's turned on, and so... You can turn it off. Well, basically, it's normally turned off. It's like it's only turned on in a crisis. But in a crisis, you could then still turn it off. Ivan, do you want to... I will point out that there is an excellent book by Yurinich on this very topic, especially for the historical context before the fall of Soviet Union. Essentially, that is a fairly accurate description that was given so far by Ed. I will only add that the pyramid shell launches directly the missiles in, in silos and S- SSBNs. In SSBNs, bombers, you still need crew participation, but otherwise it launches remotely. For example, the silos are launched remotely without any other crews participating. And while there are human elements in the perimeter or the enhanced system, I'm not sure if it is useful to rely on those human elements because they essentially use the same technical data as a computer would. So in a crisis environment, I'm not sure that it is reasonable to expect it to be turned off. At what point did people realize it was mutually assured destruction? I mean, this is the thing that an outsider always comes up against, that how could people be planning for something that would probably end up with no winner at all? Or did they think they could win? Well, you look at, I would quote from the brilliant movie, Dr. Strangelove, you look at the two different possible environments. And if you could choose between the two different possible environments, each of them terrible, you should probably choose the somewhat least terrible possible environment. So I think that that was the driving thinking in a lot of those programs. I mean, if I can jump in on this, my view of this has always been that a few things are at play. One is that you give militaries things, they plan to use those things, right? I mean, that's kind of a bureaucratic politics argument. The other is that once they're doing that, they have to have a story. And the story they tell is that in order to have a credible deterrent, you have to have plans for how you would use the weapons. So the weapons exist not to be used, but to scare the other party into never using theirs. But in order to scare them effectively, you have to have some very, very, very detailed plans for how you would use them. So that makes sense. On the population side, how far did the United States or Russia actually get to protecting their population? I mean, in-laws, for instance, in Switzerland, every building had an extraordinary bunker. They looked survivable. But did that ever trickle down to the ordinary people of the Soviet Union and the United States? So Switzerland has the world's largest civil defense program on a per capita basis, and it's done... Like there was a law passed about 60 years ago saying that every private home had to have a bomb shelter. They built public bomb shelters for the people who lived in collective housing. Some of it was extremely elaborate. The Nothing on that sort of scale per capita existed in the United States or the Soviet Union. The Soviet program at its apex was a lot bigger than the American one. I estimate in my book that the Soviet per capita spending on civil defense was something like 10 times as much as the United States. The sheer resources being invested were a lot more, especially because the peak in the Soviet Union is really in the mid-70s, which is kind of the nadir of U.S. civil defense during the Cold War. Like the program was almost abandoned during the Nixon-Ford administrations. Whereas in the United States, the peak is actually during 
really Kennedy was the only president who was really all in on civil defense. It's like he was an honest to God civil defense advocate, which is something that I think was perhaps the least popular aspect of his entire domestic political agenda, which is the reason why people don't tend to emphasize this. But now there's the classified NSC discussions where basically it's like all of his advisors tell him not to do this. And he says, well, I want to do it anyway, because we have to have some sort of plan in case the weapons are used. And so the U.S., this is the era when they put up all these yellow and black fallout shelter signs all across the U.S. And what they were doing was they were trying to identify improvised fallout shelter space in existing buildings and mark and stock it. There were hundreds of millions of shelter spaces in the peak of the system, like in theory. And the idea is like, this is a basement with a sign on it and maybe a cardboard chemical toilet and like some tins of biscuits and so forth. And the idea being that it was trying to pick the low-hanging fruit of survival. Like the, the assumption is like, well, the Soviets will nuke all these targets and there'll be all this fallout everywhere. People who are too close to the actual detonations are going to die. And we can't do anything about that without spending a lot more money. But there'll be a whole lot of people who are sort of downwind of these explosions. They're going to need protection from fallout. We're going to try and find whatever protection we can improvise from fallout as cheaply as possible. Like it costs only a few dollars a space. And the idea being that there'll be these signs everywhere. And when the bombs go off, it's like, well, a whole lot will be really, really wrong. But like tens of millions of people will survive because they're hiding in these basements with the biscuits. The people who are in the explosions are just going to die. And like there was nothing that you could do about that without spending an enormous amount of money to try and build shelters for normal people like the leadership is going to have. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. You're listening to War and Peace, a podcast of the International Crisis Group, and we're talking about war this time, uh, specifically nuclear war and how countries plan for it with Edward Geist and Ivan Kalugin. So you, Edward, you were just starting to talk about leadership and how that's different, how you, how these countries, how the US and the Soviet Union plan to protect their leadership wasn't, if you can make it to a basement with tin of biscuits, you might make it, it was a little bit more intense. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? And I know Yvonne's also looked at this at some length. How do you protect the leadership? The September 11th attacks, right? The US president was up in the air in his plane circling around, right? That's a short-term solution. Essentially, after the 1920s, 1930s scares about the chemical weapons, there were already some programs to protect the leadership say in Moscow, uh, but they were mostly focused on building actually command posts. So not shelters per se, but spaces from which the leadership could conduct continuation of government, continuations of operation type things. And one of the first such sites was actually the site for the civil defense for the MPVO at uh, Misnitsky Street. So after this and during the war, during the war, there was this big movement of building actually more comprehensive command posts for the leadership. And even in like 1941, you would see this stuff go order, you know, ordering construction in Minsk, uh, Stalingrad and, you know, all those cities that we know would be lost quite quickly after this order was given to rapidly begin the construction of those metro station like shelters. So after the 1940s, so the World War II and early 1950s, uh, there was actually a big lapse in construction of such sites because by 1950s, it was understood that they were sort of all obsolete by the time they were built. So for example, the GO42 was by the 1954, it was essentially obsolete by the time it was completed due to the accuracy and overpressure and other considerations. So there was a lot of this obsolete infrastructure that was still being used despite it being obsolete. And the 1980s, late 1970s, 1980s, 
1980s, there was a second program to actually build survivable systems. So for the high-level leadership, there were you know, big concentrated survivable sites, such as Yamantau, that, that are building in 1979. And uh, you will have a lot of dispersed soft shelters for, well, soft command posts for the, say, ministries and other small institutions. So it's not dissimilar to American practice, but I will only uh, finish to say that there is a lot of also infrastructure involved. So for example, when we were looking at 1950s construction, we would see that the spending on secure communication, so for example, a ring of uh, cable and telephone stations around Moscow actually costed more than a lot of the actual command bunkers inside Moscow. So how did uh, this all get communicated to the public, whether about how they were going to be protected or how their leaders were going to get protected? What did people know? I mean, I'm too young to have been told to duck and cover in school. And in fact, if I had been older, I would have been in the Soviet Union. So I don't know that it would have been different, right? The joke was that in the Soviet Union, right, you were told to grab a sheet and run to the cemetery. Um <laughs> Now, obviously not actually true, as Edward explained, and if you've ever been to the Moscow or St. Petersburg metro, you know how far underground those things go. I will actually point out that if you look at the oil pressure protection rating of metro stations, uh, it is around three atmospheres. And if you go to the, for example, new map, you could actually see how unsurvivable a lot of metro infrastructure is in central Moscow. Fantastic. Okay, comforting. Uh <laughs> But, you know, there was this buzz about it that kids, adults, Dr. Strange loved the movie, this notion that a nuclear war was something people were worried about. Was that intentional? Were governments trying to make people nervous enough that they would protect themselves? That was the theory in the U.S., yes. Like the back at the beginning of the 50s, the Federal Civil Defense Administration, which was the U.S. Civil Defense Organization at the time, determined that the reason that people were not supporting civil defense is because they didn't know enough to be afraid. It's like the threat of nuclear war didn't seem immediate enough. They didn't know enough about nuclear weapons. So they launched this public information campaign with the theory that basically they would tell everyone that there was a threat of nuclear attack and that they needed to be protected and they would basically write their congressmen and demand funding for this bomb shelter program that they were trying to push at the time. And so the campaign actually worked in the sense that it managed to substantially increase public sort of like awareness of nuclear threats. The extent to which the campaign actually did this is uncertain, but the Federal Civil Defense Administration analysis, they thought that it had been. The problem is that it didn't translate into the sort of like political pressure that they were hoping that it would. And so this is where these famous cultural artifacts, like duck and cover being by far the most famous, came from. The Federal Civil Defense Administration officials genuinely believed that a Soviet nuclear attack could come within the next few years. It's like they used 1954 as a planning date. The officials I've seen correspondence where they would say they actually were fretting that maybe it would come sooner than that. It's like, well, we need some sort of stopgap measure now because you don't have time to build these shelters. It's like, we want to build these shelters, but there just isn't time to build the shelters. So we need, what can people do that doesn't cost any money and we can do right away? It's like, well, duck and cover, which is something that the interviewed people who survived the atomic bombings in Japan who had ducked and covered, and they were like, okay, well, this is maybe better than nothing, and it doesn't cost anything, so let's tell everyone to duck and cover, and they did. It is effectively grab a sheet and run to the cemetery. Well, they thought that it would improve marginal survivability. Keep in mind they were thinking very sort of like nominal atomic bombs here. So yeah, grab a sheet, run to the cemetery, and hide behind a gravestone. <laughs> I mean, it'll, it'll protect you some. <laughs> Okay, I want to move us forward in time. What's going on now? You know, the Cold War's been over for 
about three decades, but we still have all of these nuclear weapons. Countries still, including the U.S. and Russia, continue to plan for how to use nuclear weapons. Have they changed how they plan for civil defense or continuity of command? In Russia, we sort of began to return to this question. So in terms of continuation of command, continuation of governments, it never stopped. Yamantau site never stopped being built. You know, stuff in Moscow never stopped being built since ever. So in a sense, there is a continuation of effort in that direction. But in terms of actual civil defense and war preparedness for a broader spectrum of institutions and people, it sort of got returned more prominently after 2012. And after 2012, you see the 2013 uh, program for the Emercon that got stuffed under the carpet because it actually was mentioning shelters and, you know, things that actually are war preparedness, mobilization preparedness. So it just got vanished in somewhere. You can see a lot of those other programs, such as the cyber and preparedness program. It's also under the carpet. So there is a lot of things going on. And not only for the civil defense, as in we want to protect the population, but also a lot of in mobile preparedness as in we want to maintain operations of key industries and key services, transportation and communications being the most obvious examples. You have those ridiculous exercises where people would say, you know, that uh, they had been hit by 200,000 nuclear weapons and, you know, somehow they maintain operations despite that. But Ivan, does, do people take these seriously? Do people really think like they used to, that nuclear Armageddon is likely or imminent? I mean, in the exercises, those people, say, in railroad companies, such as uh, Railroad Russia, they take those exercises seriously because, in a sense, they still need to, you know, write reports about how great they did, despite adversity and, you know, some very outdated assumptions. So, for example, in planning documents, you could see reference to a B-53 being dropped, three of them on a single bridge, you know, how heroically they restored this bridge, despite defect. Impressive. Yeah, I mean, in a way, it's somewhat ridiculous, but there is a lot of work going in that way. And there is, it's not only at the top level. So for example, like regions and regional representatives, like offices of those companies, they will also be building all this infrastructure. So you would see like a random village in the middle of nowhere that is the center of a municipal region. And you would see how, you know, they, they have restocked their command posts for their municipal leadership. So in some ways, it it's very much exists, but it's sort of not publicized a lot. And while there were some exercises where they say like 40 million people participated in such and such exercise, it's very inflated because 40 million people did not properly participate in this exercise in the way you would expect. 40 million people were around. Yeah, like they may have heard the <laughs> warning uh, sound in the distance or, you know, received an SMS message or something of that sort. But apart from all those inflated reporting, there is actually a lot of going on in that sense. And in the United States? Well, over here, since 9-11, our preoccupation has been with sort of single or few use events. So it's like nuclear terrorism, rogue states. The really big example of this, of course, is the Hawaii text message incident, where basically the large number of people in the state received what appeared to be the warning message that they would have received if a North Korean nuclear missile had been launched at them. And people, you know, there are videos online of this, like people freaking out and panicking and trying to take cover because that's what the message said. And that was what an authentic message would look like. But this gets at some of the problems that we have always had historically in this country is that a lot of the civil defense sort of authority is actually delegated to state and local governments in the U.S. And that's been since the Civil Defense Act of 1950. And these are the people doing your COVID vaccine rollout right now in the United States. Uh, right. So basically, the the issue being, the, like, for instance, the Hawaii incident, well, it was a state-level employee who had actually sent the message. 
the as opposed to a federal level employee, whether like the federal level would necessarily be more competent or not. But like we have all of these separate state and local level systems that aren't necessarily well integrated. So what does all of this say about how Russia and the United States think a war is going to go? Because it seems, Ivana said several times about how things were built that were out of date by the time they were halfway built, about drills that are making assumptions about weapons that have almost no relationship to what would actually be used. I mean, how divorced is all of this from... I mean, I'm not going to say reality, right? Because in reality, we hope that all of this is just planning for deterrence, et cetera, et cetera. But how divorced is all of this from the plans that the other side might actually have? I would just add that it's not only limited to the nuclear war preparedness. There are a lot of things that actually may be reasonable for modern day threats. So one of the things that we have actually been working a lot is... You know, it's cyber domain. So, for example, if Russia got denied Google services, how do we live without having access to Google? But Russia's tested this, right? With the Telegram shutdown. That is not a bad way to go around this, but uh, there is actually a big concern. How would you work without essential services that may not be domestic? Uh, actually, recent events with Amazon Web Services sort of fed in, into this concern. This is something we work a lot to mitigate. Do you think people are right to fear nuclear war less now than, say, climate change or denial of service on the internet? I mean, you're the specialist in Armageddon studies, as it were. Should people be more worried? Well, the scariest thing of all is we actually, we just don't know how likely a nuclear war is moment to moment. It's like all we know is like, like one hasn't happened yet. And so it could just be that we've gotten lucky and that our intuitions about when war isn't and isn't likely just aren't very accurate or aren't very informed. So the question of like, well, how afraid should we be? is like, well, we don't know. And that seems to me like it's a pretty good reason to be afraid. Deterrence through uncertainty. <laughs> I mean, it's, even if it's low probability, the risk is pretty high, right? That That's the whole logic of deterrence is that it's the threat that leaves something to chance. We are really sadly out of time. This has been a very morbid sort of great fun. So I just want to thank you both, Yvonne and Edward, for joining us for a conversation that I suspect our listeners will find as fascinating as I have. So thank you both. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. If you want to learn more, you really should check out Edward's book, Armageddon Insurance, Civil Defense in the United States and the Soviet Union for more of this history. And if you want to know more about the present, well, you can look around you, I suppose, and keep your ears perked up. Crisis Group doesn't work on nuclear strategies per se, but we do certainly cover what's going on in the United States and in, in Russia. And if you want to follow us there, please do. We're on www.crisisgroup.org. You should also follow Crisis Group and Hugh and me on Twitter. Crisis Group is at Crisis Group. Hugh is at Hugh underscore Pope. And I'm at Olya Olaker. Also check us out on Facebook and Instagram, where we are also at Crisis Group. And also, please do subscribe to us on Apple or Spotify. And we do love it when you rate us and do send us messages too. We're always watching out for them. Thank you. War and Peace is a partner in a network of podcasts focused on Europe, Europod. Check it out for some of the others. And as usual, we'd like to give a big thank you to our producers, Bull Media, and to our coordinator, Rebecca Zerun Asifar. She had to prepare us a lot for this edition since we have definitely gone into new territory this time. The biggest thanks, as always, go to you our listeners. We're looking forward to chatting with you some more in about two weeks. But for now, goodbye. Goodbye. War and Peace, a podcast by the International Crisis Group.